As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel Marcotti and we thank you for joining us on this Thursday. And alongside us in the studio, we welcome the very excellent only gear brand in captivity. It's James. And down the line from Rip didn't, by the way, do feel free to stop by and say hello. Uh, he's at 18 Mill Lane. It's uh, Ollie Kay. Later on, we'll be looking at a pair of Welshmen who are on the move. But we start with the game of the weekend at Wembley. Tottenham hosts Manchester United on Sunday. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has won five out of five in charge of United. But it goes without saying, Ole, that this this is going to be the real acid test for him. Oh, well, it will be. Um, it's um, it, it, you know, I think everybody could see the, the the uplift at Manchester United, the way the players are playing with more freedom, with, with smiles on their faces, and they've ticked every box so far. But the fixtures will get tougher now, and and and, and we'll get more of a sense of uh, of how much the uplift is, and 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 also get a sense of how good these players are, because there are players there who are an awful lot better than than was being shown in the um, final months under under Mourinho. I mean, I'd, I'd say Pogba is is a better footballer than he ever showed under under Mourinho. Um, I would be hesitant in, in, in saying just how brilliant he looks now because I think he's always capable of playing well in those smaller games. But it's but he is clearly a better player than 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 he was showing or felt able to show previously. So is Martial. So is Rashford. Lingard looks like he's got a spring in his step again. Sanchez has been awful for United for the first year, but he he looked a bit sharper. So did Lukaku against um, against Reading, and I think people underestimate sometimes how just how important that sense of you know people feeling happy in what they're doing and feeling um, like they've got a spring in their step. Just how important that is in terms of making players perform. Um, so. We've seen in the last four games, I know, I know people say, oh, it was only Cardiff, oh, it was only Bournemouth, Huddersfield, Reading. But United played better in those games than in the equivalent matches under Mourinho last season, never mind this season. So there is clearly a spring in a set. Players look better than they look now. And I, I think probably between now and the end of the season, we will get a clearer sense, really, of, of how good this squad is and, and, and these players are. Ollie there mentioned Paul Pogba and how he seems to be revitalised under Solskjaer James. Is that down to man management or do you think there's more to it tactically? I think it's kind of a bit of both really, isn't it? And I, I think, you know, it's not it's not rocket science from the tactical point of view. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that A, he's playing regularly, which of course wasn't, wasn't a given under Mourinho, certainly in the kind of last days of Mourinho when he was 
he was often benched or even, I think, on some cases, out, out of the squad entirely. I'm suggesting that with all the money he makes that... Not playing is an excuse for him, not scoring goals <laughs> and providing assists. <laughs> Incredible. Um, it seems that in the last sort of four or so games, he's played pretty much as a sort of, as a kind of number 10 with, you know, a lot of freedom to sort of attack the box um, and not, you know, so much kind of defensive responsibility as he had under Mourinho where he often played, would play in a slightly kind of deeper role, either, you know, a lot in a, a lot of times in a in a sort of midfield three, or, or also occasionally in in the double pivot, kind of expected to stay back a little bit more, and and so I think that certainly helped, and and also I think giving someone a role like that where you know you have a little bit more freedom, sort of intersects in a way with man management because it's sort of you know it kind of pumps his tyres a little bit. Obviously, Pogba and Solskjaer have this history dating back to when Solskjaer was the you know the reserves team was successful during that time, and uh, you know prior to you know this strange turn of events that ended up in him taking the united job i think Solskjaer was asked on i think you know norwegian television or something you know what would you do hypothetically and you know he would he said something like you know i would build the team around pogba and you know i think for a player as ollie said i think sometimes the beneficial effects of, of the human side can be underestimated i think you know having a manager who just has such kind of evident belief in you i think for any kind of human being in any walk of life i think is is bound to kind of have a, a positive effect I spoke to somebody who speaks to Pogba, and just backing up what James says, one big difference, and, and again, maybe it might be different when they play against a better team, but it's a lot easier for a player like Pogba when there are players ahead of him running into space when he receives the ball. I mean, not just for Pogba, I guess, but for, for, for any player. What was happening sometimes uh, under the previous manager is he would receive the ball there'd be fewer people ahead of him, fewer options, they were more tightly marked, and he'd feel the need to try to hit some sort of killer ball. Now he knows that the people will be up there, he feels more confident. If the pass isn't there, he's happy to lay it off and go find space elsewhere. And obviously that's that's helped him. I think I think also what it shows is that it's not purely about, you know, formations and position. I think sometimes we can be a little bit simplistic in the way we, we, we analyse it. And I think, you know, in his last season at Juve, Pogba played, or, or indeed probably in his last couple of seasons at Juve, Pogba played mainly in, in a midfield three in that position. On the but, side of the three, yeah. On the side of the three, and there was that whole thing, if you remember, sort of when he first turned up at Man U, that, you know, that was really his his best position and the only one where you could really sort of unlock the, the real Pogba. And in fact, he sort of, you know, this season, I think, has played that role in the sort of on the side of a midfield three and hadn't been particularly good. And now he's playing in more of a sort of ten position, and you know he's he's playing really well again. So it shows you that it's not it's not just the position that a player plays. It's also, as Gab said, you know it's what's going on around them. It's how the rest of the team plays. It's how many players you've got around you attacking the box. It's you know how many players you've got behind you. You know giving you defensive cover. So and, and not, I mean, and sorry, I mean just on the Juve thing, it, the the guy behind him in that three was Andrea Pirlo, who had most of the playmaking duties. And behind him, if people went and pressed Pirlo, there was there's Bonucci, who has had ups and downs, but is obviously a very, very good passer of the ball and actively participated into stepping into midfield and building play. So I'd actually argue he had a lot fewer playmaking responsibilities at Juventus, you know, relative to what he found at United, who simply have players with different characteristics. 
Well, there's bound to be a narrative surrounding Maurizio Pochettino, widely thought to be the number one choice at Old Trafford. I'm sorry, we've got to we've got to get to this story, of course. Uh, widely thought to be the number one choice at Old Trafford for the manager's job in the summer. Uh, Pochettino said this week that he'd like to spend the next 20 years at Tottenham and maybe finish his career at uh, White Hart Lane, but also suggested he could be gone before Spurs win their next trophy and likened his position to that of Arsene Wenger's end at Arsenal. Ollie, what do you make of that? I don't think he has ever given anything like a definitive position since this Manchester United vacancy came up. I don't think he's ever said definitively one way or the other how he feels about it. And you probably shouldn't expect him to because he probably isn't definitive in his own mind about it. He probably thinks, well, yeah, it would be great to to stay at Tottenham um, if if everything keeps going the way I want it to. But he can't say that for sure. Um, He doesn't know what things are going to be like at the end of the season. He doesn't know what the plans are going to be to add to the squad, whether he's going to be at risk of losing players. So it is a strange situation. I, I think it's one that probably annoys him. I think it annoys people at Tottenham more. And I'm sure it annoys their fans when he's being asked about Manchester United constantly. I think probably the best thing from a Tottenham fan point of view would be that Solskjaer kept winning apart from at the weekend and, and, um, and Solskjaer got the job and, and, and that there was no vacancy even to discuss. But um, I've, I've said that I, I don't think it is... is in any way certain that, that he would go to Manchester United of Offer. I think it would, it's, it's, a, it's a great job. I think, I think he's got a very good job at the moment. I think that there would probably be another very good job in Spain that might come up as well. So maybe Manchester United would be um, sort of the third most appealing job for him by the end of the season. Well, Tottenham took a step towards the first major trophy of the season by winning the first leg of their Carabao Cup semi-final with Chelsea. The only goal coming from a Harry Kane penalty awarded after VAR had ruled Kane wasn't offside. Uh, The VAR angles seemed to show Kane onside, but the angle that Chelsea's analysis team had at their disposal appeared to show Kane's head was in an offside position. Cav, what's going on here? Martin Zeeler, a colleague, had a, had a piece about this and suggested, um, I think he spoke to the PGMOL, that they felt two things. One is that Chelsea's pictures might have been a couple frames forward because the ball is blurry, suggesting that the ball is moving. So in other words, their sort of snapshot is you know a couple milliseconds after Harry Kane's head moves in the offside position. But also, it's not clear where that line on the pitch comes from. And just to, just so people understand this, we all remember that, that funny, crooked BT Sport line. This is not what referees look at with VAR. So they have, they have software which takes into account the position on the pitch, the position of the cameras. It has some kind of 3D imaging as well, some sort of mechanism to take away the parallax effect, which I'm sure we all remember from school, especially Gearbrandt, since he was there a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> And so their line is more accurate. Chelsea's line, who knows where it came from? Presumably they don't have that same, that same software, and it's just a guy drawing a line. It was obviously a very close call. Um, and you can debate to, again, I saw different things about whether the flag went up or didn't go up or whatever. This is the system, and, and it kind of works. Well, let's get back onto Tottenham and, and obviously... It was announced that their new stadium won't be ready until at least March. This means that their last 16 time with Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League will take place at Wembley. James, is there any sense in them moving in before the end of the season now? From Tottenham's point of view, I can completely see the 
point in them moving from a results point of view they're not particularly good at Wembley and let me clarify that their points per game this season is better away from home than it is at Wembley whereas if you remember in their last season at the old White Hart Lane their home record was phenomenal I think they won 17 and drew two or something Um, at the moment they're not really getting all the benefits that a team get from having a home stadium because it's not really a home for some games the attendance is capped at 51,000 there has been, I think, possibly not so much in recent weeks, but definitely at times I think there's been a slight sense of sort of, not maybe dis- disaffection, but kind of staleness with the fans. You know, you don't have that real kind of feel-good factor that you have from being, you know, at your real home ground. They're there a bit longer than they've wanted to be. And the players are also feeling the same thing. And we know that because Danny Rose said that quite explicitly, you know, came to the mix zone about a month ago and said, you know, to be honest, the magic's really worn off. So from Tottenham's point of view, I can completely see why they would want to move. Big psychological bounce, you know, presumably from playing at, you know, your new home stadium. And if you move sort of, you know, when they, you know, think they now might move, which is sort of mid-March or whatever, you kind of almost get that twice, don't you? Because you sort of get it at the end of this season. And then, you you know, it would kind of feel the same at the start of next season, you know, start of our first season at White Hart Lane. From Tottenham's point of view, can completely understand why they would want to do it. The more interesting question, I think... And something that I think maybe hasn't been made enough of is should they be allowed to do it? Which I think is a really interesting question. Neil Warnock kind of touched on this and said, you know, it's not fair that some of the Tottenham's opponents get to face them at Wembley and some get to face them at White Hart Lane. Personally, I think he had it the wrong way round because he was saying that it's the teams that play them at Wembley that will be disadvantaged. But at the moment, you have a situation where a Crystal Palace game, which is, I think, their fifth last home game of the season, could be their first home game at the new White Hart Lane. What if they have, you know, it's delayed a little bit more than that, and so rather than their fifth last home game being the big White Hart Lane opening, it's their third last home game of the season, which is against Huddersfield. To me, there are potential issues of unfairness there because Huddersfield, rather than playing them, uh, you know, a Wembley where, you know, it's not really a real home stadium and, you know, all those issues that I've described... Huddersfield, whereas all the other teams that battling relegation have had the situation of playing their away game against Tottenham at Wembley, Huddersfield then go have to go and play them at the new White Hart Lane, absolutely huge occasion, it's bouncing, you've got that massive feel-good factor of, you know, playing at our real home stadium again. To me, that's where it potentially becomes interesting and you potentially have issues of, you know, is this actually really entirely fair? I think it's an interesting debate, but I, I just don't see the issue. I, I think... If you look at the the home games that they've played this season, I mean, we're all working on the assumption that Spurs would have a greater advantage at their new stadium than at Wembley. But look at their home form, although it's not been great this season. Their, their defeats have been to um, Liverpool, Man City and, and Wolves, which is not going to affect the title race. It's not going to affect the, the bottom of the table. I think they beat Fulham at home, they beat Cardiff at home, they beat Burnley at home, they get... They beat Southampton at home. I don't think Huddersfield would be able to say that if they go to um, the new stadium in, in, in April or Crystal Palace do in, in, in March that, that they're greatly disadvantaged by that. I, I, I mean, look, you go to Anfield for a, for, for a night game or, or Goodison for a night game or Crystal Palace for a night game and, and the atmosphere will be probably better, probably livelier, probably more partisan than at 12.30 on a Saturday. I, I know there has to be integrity and symmetry in the um, Premier League competition but you're not going to get exactly the same conditions at, at, at 38 games you're not going to get the same referees you're not going to it, I, I, 
I really don't see it as an issue. Good debate, non-issue. Well, finally, whatever happens between Tottenham and Chelsea in the second leg, we can say it will be Manchester City. They face in the League Cup final after City beat Burton Albion 9-0 in the first leg of their semi at the Etihad. The biggest ever win by a team in the semi-final of an English Cup competition. It was a very humbling night for Burton and Nigel Clough, Ollie. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he took it with, with, with quite good humour as... as um, uh, as, as he would, and, and, as, and as his father would have done, of course. But it, it was, um, yeah, it, it was. I mean, to say it was men against boys would be an understatement. Um, I mean, it was just an absolute <laughs> rout. But um, an interesting thing. I mean, a lot of people have, have. I've seen a lot of people saying last night and this morning, "Oh, I, you know, City should have shown, you know, shown them a bit of respect, eased off a bit." I think it's more respectful to to keep going. And I mean, what. What would be respectful about just playing keep ball for the for, for the um, for the last um, for the second half, having gone what was it four 0 up at half time? And I, I like to see teams going for it. I like to see, I, like, I think when you saw the team selection and De Bruyne playing and so on, obviously it was it was a changed team, but Manchester City are seriously going for it. I enjoyed it personally, and I, I'm sure Burton's fans will will look back on it in years to come. We, we, with a sense of amusement and um, nostalgia, because you know the nine nil didn't happen very often. I thought it was, a, you know, I, I was a strong performance and a strong statement from a team who are probably, you know, and, and the manager probably keen to just make a point as well to Liverpool about about how City are, are feeling that they can compete on full fronts and, and a memorable result rather than a, rather than one that should have people shaking their heads. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. It is time now to delve into the Championship and focus on a team that very recently were in the Premier League, so you will know about this team gap. Stoke City sacked Gary Rowett on Tuesday and then quickly replaced him with Luton's Nathan Jones on Wednesday. Ollie, you've written about this for the Times. Other names linked with the role included Sam Allardyce, David Moyes, Lavisa Yakanovic. So how did they land Jones? Well, from what I can gather, um, they did sound out people like Moyes and Yakanovic because this decision to... Um, to sack Gary Rout, it wasn't made on the spur of the moment. I think he'd been he'd been on thin ice really for for a few weeks. It just hasn't worked out, and they they they've been seeing what's available, and they apparently sounded out Moyes and Yukanovich. Um and there was not a great desire from for, from those two to sort of accept a mid-table championship job halfway through the season, and they were looking at alternatives. And, and Nathan Jones, from what I'm told, just just leapt out as, as somebody who. Well, he's actually older than Gary Rowett, um, but he's but he's a young a young manager, 45, and did, done an exceptional job in um, in three years at Luton, taking over when they were um, in the lower reaches of of League Two, and he's taken them to second place in 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 League One, and they're playing great football and scoring loads of goals, and his reputation is very very good. I can totally understand why Luton fans are devastated by it and wondering or fearing that the wheels might come off their promotion bid. Um, Ollie, but, can I just ask about him? Mm. Hey, um, well, are Luton fans terrified that Gary Rowett might show up? Or, uh, but um, I was going to ask about Rowett too, but there's a piece with, with Gregor Robertson as well um, where he talks about how 
there's this wonderful line he has. He says, like, you know, for me, like, my way of playing is a lifestyle. It's not a, it's, it's not a tactical choice and whatever. And they make it seem as if, I think that the word Barcelona has been mentioned. What is it? Is it a bunch of, like, short passes and movement? Is it, is it like a Guardiola Barcelona that he plays? I mean, I, I, I don't know how much you've seen of Luton, but is this what they're getting? And is it somebody who will try to play that way? And what's the thing? Because it seems like quite a departure from from, from Pulis, Sparky, and uh, and Rowett. Yeah, it, it's. I mean, I, I, I'm not claiming to have seen Luton week in, week out, etc. But but when I have seen them, they they've been exciting, a good passing game. Not not trying to play a thousand passes in a game and and totally 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 dominate possession. It's it's um, no, they they play, they play quickly and and precisely and. In a very attacking way, and then they scored stacked forwards of goals in League Two last season. They've they've gone up, and and, and I think they're the highest scorers in League One this season. When you're talking about him then, and quoting from from Gregor's piece, the the sense that I've had about him, and I've never met the guy, but there seems to be a a, a, a thing of the, of the young Brendan Rodgers about him. Um, in a good way, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think there's a bad way. Wow, the shiny teeth and stuff and the thing with the envelope. I mean, he doesn't do that stuff, right? You know, Ferguson did that envelope thing 25 years ago, but I I digress. Um, Please, please wash your mouth out if you're going to mention (laughs) that kind of thing. No, but he he has a sort of slightly evangelical way of talking about the game, and I'm I'm not talking about his his, his religion, etc., but he has an evangelical way of talking about his approach and players buying into it. And I think people kind of found that a bit odd. Some people found that a bit odd when Rogers was, was talking that way when he went to Liverpool and was thrust into the spotlight. But it's, it's um, often players respond very, very, very well to that way of talking and, and, and this sort of way of talking as if you've opened players' eyes to something. And, and if you back that up on the training pitch, as, as Jones appears to, to do, then, um, and you back it up with the results, then it, it, it tends to get you quite some way. And um, it would be interesting to see how it does it Stoke, because Stoke, you would have said, um, I've written a piece on this, which is on our website, but Stoke have always been, or in the modern era, been a patient club, a club that's prepared to look long-term and give managers time, and the time they gave Pulis, the time they gave Hughes. And the past 12 months have been turbulent, going through three managers, getting decisions wrong, buying poorly, and Although there is a desire to get you know, to try and force their way into the playoffs this season, there is a sense that what what they really want is to rebuild um, younger players, get into a way of playing which is going to which is going to serve them well next season, and, and develop into what can be a sustainable Premier League team within a couple of years. Um, that is the plan, rather than just thinking right, well, let's get somebody who can just drag us into the playoffs by. Any means necessary, which is often the way clubs in the championship look at it. Can I just ask quickly, just because I said I would, um, and anybody can answer this if they have an opinion on it. What's the deal with with Rowett? Because I remember, obviously at Birmingham, all these people coming out and talking about what a visionary he was, how brilliant he was, a breath of fresh air, such a great future ahead of him. And then, obviously, Derby, and now this. For me, and I haven't seen, I've seen very little of his teams. What I have seen seems not particularly impressive in terms of the way he plays. Yeah, they don't play great football. So why is he so popular? Did the whole, everybody just collectively like lose their minds? And, 
or has well, it become I think the worse? Birmingham, the Birmingham or? situation was a little unfair because obviously he was sacked on didn't, when new owners took over and the club were, what, seventh or something? They were just outside the playoffs. And well, it, weren't they playing really bad football? They, they were. They were. Okay. They, they, yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. But I'm just saying in terms of that, perhaps unfair to particularly base it on right. because it was a new ownership that came in and they wanted Gianfranco Zola obviously in charge um, but yes the, the football's never been attractive right. and the Derby was about. just bad like, it's, it's not just, like you had a yeah. mean owner or anything no it, I would say it's just basic football okay unattractive football. <laughs> Thank you. That's how I would describe it. But uh, James, we've also seen Dean Smith replace Steve Bruce at Aston Villa, much to my own dismay, and I don't like talking about it. But anyway, is this a change in mentality, do you think, for, for owners uh, steering clear of the old guard in search of the next generation? Ollie was saying that they... Um you know, they considered David Moyes. So I guess it can't be considered too much of a sort of quantum shift in, in mentality. I think, yeah, to me, it sort of it sort of struck me as sort of it's sort of an attempt by Stoke to kind of find you know their Dean Smith or even their Chris Wilder, I guess, isn't it? Um, clearly, the standard of coaching in the Championship, I think, is exceptionally high and has been for a few seasons. Obviously, you know, this season you've got the likes of Bielsa and Farker up at the top, and last season, you know, you had Nuno and Jukanovic, and I think, you know, these are all these are all really, really good coaches, and I think you can compete with a sort of, what you might call a more sort of old-school manager, and I think, you know, Cardiff obviously did that really well this season. I actually think they're doing a great, I think Neil Warnock is doing a great job again this season, but I suppose... The notion of sort of discovering, you know, the next Eddie Howe or, you know, the English Julian Nagelsmann will always be seductive because I guess with a sort of with a more modern manager, you sort of, you know, one that, you know, preaches attacking football and so forth. You've got a bigger upside, haven't you? So I guess that will always that will always kind of be a seductive thing for for the people that um, for the people that run football clubs. Gone are the days when Alan Kerbishley was one of the favourites for a job. For every job. <laughs> Indeed. But um, obviously we've been talking about Nathan Jones there and speaking of another Welshman on the move, it's been widely reported that Arsenal's Aaron Ramsey has agreed a summer move to Juventus. Now, Gab, he'll become the third Welsh footballer to play for the old lady. And the numbers make for interesting reading on this move. They do. The first number you said is the third one. Can anybody yes. name the two before him other than Ollie? Because I'm sure he knows. So one's John Charles, is yes. that right? Um, I can't. I can't say. I'd be cheating because it's in here. It's on my computer. Sorry, what was that, Ollie? Ian Rush. Thank you. Uh, Brief, yeah. Briefly and not terribly successfully. There's just some pretty big boots to fill. I mean, given <laughs> that John Charles and Ian Rush. So good luck, Aaron Ramsey. Hey, well, it's, a, it's just it's an interesting dynamic, right? The, I mean, Juve did this last year with with Emery Sean. The numbers that that have appeared uh, suggest that he's getting paid uh, 140 grand a week, but that is that is net, so that's after tax. So you work it out, and you compare apples with, with apples. You're talking 270 thousand pounds a week, um, which kind of underscores why Arsenal might not have have resigned him if those numbers are accurate. And certainly in Emerson's case, and with Juve, we know because as a club they're listed on the stock exchange, so they have to disclose more than they do in the past. Emerson got. He made like something 170 grand a week. That's his, that's the deal he got when he moved on a free transfer, which is I think he nearly doubled his uh, his Liverpool wages. You can see why it's so lucrative. Whether it makes sense in the longer term for Juve, I I don't know. He is 28 years old, uh, and it's not. We were talking about this before. It's not 100 percent clear where he necessarily uh, fits in. It'll be interesting to see how much Juve have to pay in commission to to his agent. And the reason I say that is that. A year ago, the um, Reza Fazeli, the guy who, who took Emre Shan to Juventus, 
uh, Juventus ended up paying him and, and the other agents involved 16 million euros, about 13 and a half million pounds in commissions. And again, these are facts. We know it because Juventus had to disclose it because they're listed on the stock exchange. So we've kind of moved into a situation now where transfer fees are so high that if you get somebody on a free transfer, you can pay Rams. I mean, if I think Ramsey, that wage would be more than all but what, three Premier League players? You know, Alexis Sanchez, uh, maybe De Bruyne and, um, and Ozil. Not only can you get crazy money, but your agent can hit the absolute mother load as well. So, again, I don't know if Ramsey's agent is getting a comparable commission, uh, but certainly that's what Sean's guy got a year ago. So it's an interesting situation to watch. It is an interesting situation to watch, and it's been muted for a while, this move uh, to Syria. But how surprising is it that Ramsey could be playing for Juventus, James? I mean, I don't know whether it's uh, surprising. I think, you know, Juve, I think, you know, they, I think they've been pretty prominent in the kind of race for his signature. But I feel like it's kind of a, a slightly odd move for, for Juve. I mean, he's 28 years old. You know, I, I think Aaron Ramsey is, is a good player. Um, but to me, I don't think he's ever sort of quite established himself as being really one of the real elite midfielders in, in the Premier League. You know, he's not going to give you sort of, you know, 15 assists a season or whatever. And, you know, I've, I've been reading sort of, you know, reports on this saying, you know, he's going to come into the starting eleven, and, you know, he's going to it's going to be him and, and Pjanic and, and Matuidi, who's, you know, he's good, but Matuidi is also quite quite old, older than Ramsey, even 31, I think. Um Bentancur and has been quite good this season, and obviously they've got they've got Chan as well. So I, I don't know. For me, it's kind of a it's kind of an odd one. But you know, I guess Juve, they, you know, they do like to I guess develop maybe slightly older players. Cristiano being the obvious example, but also you know the likes of, of Matuidi and Kadir, although that was I suppose less less successful. But um, it's interesting. It'd be, it'd be really interesting to see how he, how he does. To me, it's 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 a gamble, and a lot of it. Uh, there's a lot of suggestions in Italy that this kind of heralds them having to sell one of their prize assets next year because they still got to figure out how to sell Ronaldo. And they also have the whole Gonzalo Higuain cluster mess to deal with as well. well. One interesting thing is from Arsenal's point of view, where I think everybody is looking at it and saying, well, how can Arsenal compete with that wage? Yet we're saying that, that one of the few players who's paid more than him in the Premier League is, is Mesut Ozil, who is, struggling to get into the team at Arsenal. And I know his uh, Arsenal, uh, I know it was widely sort of hailed as a coup last, 12 months ago when when they retained Ozil on, the, on that huge contract. But it didn't look like a very, very sensible long-term investment. And if, if it stopped them retaining 12 months later a guy who I think is, I mean, I know he's been in and out of the team among, uh, uh, under under Emery, but I've thought that that perhaps reflects the contract situation rather than reflecting um, Emery's view of him as a player. I might be wrong, but I, Ramsey is, is two years younger, is more likely to fit into a modern manager's template that, that, than perhaps Ozil is, um, or perhaps the, the, than the 30-year-old Ozil is. Um, and I, that's not me saying I think he, he would have been worth £300,000 a week for Arsenal, but I think that huge deal which was a huge and probably like a very important statement at the time for Arsenal in the months that they lost Sanchez um, looks a bit short-sighted doesn't it four months later VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen VoiceOver on settings so you can navigate it just by listening books contacts 
Calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there, and welcome to The Sweeper, the Times' fancy football tip service. As ever, I'm Charlie Scott, and I'm in the studio with Paddy Bear. Hello. The uh, Premier League is back after a couple of cup competitions, the FA Cup and Carabao Cup. Man City had a, had a bit of fun, scoring 16 goals, conceding none. And also, in Fantasyland, everyone's got another wildcard. So this week, Paddy and I are going to look at who we might put in a wildcard squad if we were playing our wildcard chip. Who's jumping out at you? Well, firstly, I, I must say I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. If, if you could at all avoid it, do try and save it for those double game weeks later on. But if you're panicking, we're here to help. Starting in goal, as is the time on tradition, I think. Um, obviously, Vicente Guaita, I think is how you pronounce that, seems to be first choice at Palace now. 4.2 million, three clean sheets in their past five. That's seductively cheap. I think there still remains a slight risk that for whatever reason Hennessy gets the job back at some point, though, so I wouldn't pick a no-hoper with him. Yeah. Someone like uh, Ben Foster, who's pretty solid at Watford, yeah. and I think Palace's only tough game coming up uh, coincides with Watford having quite a nice one, so that works well. Okay. What about Neil Etheridge? Neil Etheridge, well, he scores, he scores loads of points, saves loads of penalties, and Cardiff's fixtures are not too bad in the next six weeks or so. Um, I think they've quite a few home games and they they defend quite well, Cardiff, so he's one to keep an eye on as well. Defensively, I think you've got to have a Liverpool defender, really, don't you? Yeah. Alexander-Arnold seems the sensible one. Definitely. Uh, Lucas Dinier at Everton is basically a winger who takes mm. free kicks, so that seems pretty easy. Uh, Matt Doherty is a sensible one. Ricardo Pereira is popular, but I think his tricky fixtures make him possibly not that attractive. Definitely, definitely. I mean, he, he often is playing in attacking midfield for Leicester, but yeah, like you say, they have tough games coming up so I, if you don't already have him I would hold that yeah and I think the big decisions are going to come at which sort of big money players do you have I think Salah's a pretty sensible one at this stage given the way he's playing and you can captain him every week you're probably going to have to pick one of Kane or Hazard that is if you want the money for a decent Man City player Sterling's the best one of them maybe I think so Sterling he was rested against Burton Albion on Wednesday night so you'd expect him to come straight back into the starting lineup. and I think of the Man United guys Pogba is still the most sensible option isn't he out of their front four the rest are all prone to some rotation risk definitely I think Pogba and Rashford's mm-hmm. value makes him a good option as well I think he's 7.3 million so it's not the end of the world if you have him and he doesn't play any wildcard picks any well, no pun intended <laughs> Danny Ings I think maybe Southampton or Redmond Ings is I was injured but if you can stash him on your bench for a week he's such good value and he's their top man we'll have a full wildcard 11 for you once we've galvanised our thoughts in this week's email which will be with you on Friday and how do they sign up for that Charlie? they sign up for that by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash fancy football and you can also get mine and Paddy's advice on our Facebook page just search for The Sweeper on Facebook and we will allow you to join that very elite group 
It is time now for the return of our predictions game. We took a break over Christmas as Gab hit the slopes. And a reminder that we award one point for a correct result and three points for a correct score. And I think it's only fair that we remind everybody, Gab, that I currently lead this 11 Five yeah, that's really season. necessary, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. Go on then. Should we start with the first game? West Ham uh, and uh, and Arsenal. Yeah, you got? a London derby. Early kickoff on Saturday, this one. I am going for a 2-1 Arsenal win. You always go chalk. I'm going to say 1-1 <laughs> one, one up the hammers. They did win the World Cup. Uh, <laughs> Brighton hosting Liverpool. Um I think you see how Liverpool sort of react. You know, obviously they rested everybody uh, at Wolves. Um, that said, I think Liverpool are a lot better than Brighton. I also think they really match up very well with Brighton. Uh-huh. So I'm going to say Liverpool two nil winners. Okay, I agree. Obviously, that Liverpool will win this one, and I've gone for a three nil win. Ooh. I know. Ooh. I don't know if that's good or not. Right, um, Wembley, Tottenham against Manchester United, the first big test we could say, for, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. No disrespect to the other clubs, of course, that they've already played. Are you going to make me go first with my prediction? Again? No, I'll go first. I'll go first. Sorry. Um, I think this is going to be quite dramatic, and I think there's going to be quite a few goals in this one. So I have gone for a 2-2 draw. Ooh, mm. I can see that. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, taking points at Wembley. Um, yeah, I can see the draw, but I'm going to be a little bit more, more muted here. Oh. I'm going to say 1-1. Okay. All right, that's fine. Oh, let's get into your wheelhouse now. Oh, no. Do you know what? I hate... So, Brentford against Stoke at Griffin Park. I never like predicting Brentford games and results. I just hate it. But Uh, How how is Frank Thomas Frank doing? Well, we're unbeaten in our last four in the league. You could say unbeaten in the last five. Business is picked up then? Business is picked up. He's he's not doing too bad. Um, Oh. I think it's going to be tricky, though, with now Jones in play. If, if they hadn't appointed Jones, I would have been a bit more confident. But well, like, it would have been Rowett, and it would have been just well, no, just a caretaker manager. I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah, okay. I wish it was Rowett still in charge. You for that. really don't like Gary No, do you know? I love Gary. He's such a lovely man, really nice man. But He's I just just, a, d- just didn't really enjoy his football. Okay. Just didn't enjoy his football, and I've seen his teams play. Right. I think God. it's my turn to go first. Go on. I don't want to put you at a disadvantage here. <laughs> so. Um, I'm going to believe in my bees because you know what? Every time I drive along the A4, I see that stadium like it's adding a little building. bit, yes, a little bit, a little stadium. bit. Yes, mm. um, it looks. It looks. I mean, there's a building site right now, but it's coming along. Uh, that's some serious. That's some serious visibility, right? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, maybe except for the Emirates, most other grounds in London, well, and Wembley, obviously, because of the stupid giant arch. <laughs> um, you know, they don't get that much sort of visibility from no, quite passing motorists on their way um, to their hotels from Heathrow. So um, I'm going to go uh, Brentford 2, Stoke nil. Oh, OK. Well, I have to go with my heart, obviously. Um, and I'm going for a 2-1 win All right. for the Bees, obviously. Uh, what about a huge game in, in Portugal? Sporting Lisbon against Porto. Huge rivalry between these two sides, Gab. Um I know that Sporting lost last time out, and in fact have lost two of their last three, but that they were away from home, and they're doing very well at home. In fact, they've won all their games at home, Sporting Lisbon. Uh, as for Porto, well, of course, they are the league leaders. They've won 16 in a row. They are. It's, it's a movable object <sighs> against unstoppable force here. Mm. I, though, think 
Sporting in a win, 2-1. Ooh, mm. right. Well, I'm going to play it safer here. <laughs> I'm going to go for, for the draw with the addendum that my man, Bastos, if fit, <laughs> will score. Are you asking for extra points if he scores? Oh, come on. I'm just asking. You have a six-point lead. Know, you I'm give me an extra asking. point. I, I'm, Charlie, we can note that. We'll All give right. him an extra point okay. if he scores. That is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Ollie Kay and James Gearbrand. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. Uh, it's just £3 for three months in our special January sale. That's right. It's our way of cheering everybody up after the passing of the holiday season. Uh, search The Times subscription for more information. And uh, we're going to be back on Monday with all the reaction to the weekend's football. Till then, bye-bye. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.